Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is Jason Grah, who is performing in a show called Perfect Harmony, The Songs of Jerry Herman, and that's playing on the 42nd Street Moon website through May 2nd. Jason Grah has been on Broadway in A Grand Night for Singing, Falsettos, Stardust, Snoopy, Off-Broadway, Forever Plaid, Olympus on My Mind, Hello Mudda, Hello Fada, was on the national tour as the wizard in Wicked, has a one-man show, also did a show with Faith Prince called The Prince and the Showboy, has done several television shows, films, including The Voice on Home on the Range, The Voice of Larry the Leprechaun for Lucky Charms, which I just found out. Hi, Richard. Nice talking to you. And by the way, it's Lucky the Leprechaun, not Larry the Leprechaun. It's Lucky for Lucky Charm Cereal. So his name is Lucky. Larry is a funny kind of alternate version. I like Larry. They're magically delicious. Hi, I'm Larry the Leprechaun. Give me some milk for these marshmallows, would you? I'm not the voice of Lucky anymore, so you know you can call him whatever the hell you want. Perfect Harmony is with 42nd Street Moon, and you've worked for them before several times. How did this show come about, particularly during a pandemic, which means it had to be recorded? I did this Perfect Harmony, gosh, I've been doing it for 10 years, I think. There's a CD of it. We recorded it live at the Colony Theater in Burbank, California. John Boswell, who is my musical director for this, and he's fantastic. And we premiered it at the Jocelyn Center in Palm Springs, and the stage was set right next to the crematorium. So that was really special. People were dying to get in to see us. Was there an odor? (laughs) Just from my performance. I didn't smell anything from the crematorium. (laughs) It was very disturbing. We were like, oh my God, if you make the wrong turn, either you get to the crematorium or you come to see me in perfect harmony. So the choice is yours. That was really interesting. We premiered it out there. We did like a a tryout and then we brought it to LA and did it at the beautiful Federal, upstairs at the Federal, where they have a great cabaret space in North Hollywood. And then we did it all over the country. You know, I've worked so closely with Jerry Herman and I had so many stories and so many experiences. So I thought, you know, I'm not above riding his coattails about this. So I just wanted to put the show together. He loved it and he helped me with it, helped me choose the songs and all that. And he just loved the show. He, he was such a great guy. We lost him a year ago in 2019. So really a year and a half ago, almost. He was the greatest guy. And I thought I would love nothing more than to do a tribute to Jerry. So that's why we started doing it. How did it come to 42nd Street Moon? And I understand it. That you went into a, uh, I guess, a studio a few weeks ago to record it. How did that go and how was it set up? So 42nd Street Moon, I got to tell you, has been so absolutely incredible in 
you know, keeping a presence going on social media during this whole pandemic, you know, I mean, it's just been so unbelievably tough for every theater and theater company in this country and the world, actually. And they've really worked hard at, you know, as I'm sure you've seen, you know, keeping a social media presence. They've had interview shows, talk shows. I've done several. They've had concerts. We did a fun Scrooge and Love reunion where everybody sang Christmas carols and songs. And and so they're really keeping their presence going and, you know, figuring out ways to stay relevant, which is so important. So they're doing this concert series with Lady Day at Emerson Grill. And so they thought my Jerry Herman show might be a fun thing to do as well, because that's kind of the way into theaters right now, you know, or are doing one and two person shows. They're easier to produce and, and, you know, you don't have to be with other cast members and and all that kind of stuff. So yes, I recorded it two weeks ago. This is a co-production between 42nd Street Moon and Musical Theater West in Long Beach. And I've worked at that theater as well. And they're also going to be streaming it through their uh, website and Facebook page. And Daniel Thomas, who is, you know, one of the artistic directors at our theater at 42nd Street Moon, used to be one of the executive directors over at at Musical Theater West. So he has the tie-in. So they did this as a co-production. So we went to Long Beach and I filmed it there in a in a rehearsal hall which they made into a beautiful studio. It's a, they really made it look gorgeous. Kind of looks like Harmonia Gardens. There's like maroon curtains behind me and a kind of a gold tablecloth over on the side. So it kind of made it look very Hello Dolly, Harmonia Gardens. It's very Jerry Herman and very festive. So we filmed it there uh, with cameras and everybody was wearing masks. And, you know, I took mine off to sing and John, my musical director, took his off to play and then we put him back on. What is the accompaniment? Just a piano or a combo or what? With uh, John Boswell, you only need a piano. He is uh, He's masterful. And uh, I play my oboe as well in the show. According to what I saw from 42nd Street Moon, there are other performers singing songs, or is that just 42nd Street Moon's use of perfect harmony? They're going to be kind of my warm-up act, and so they'll be, they'll be singing Jerry Herman songs, and then I'll come out and do my show. They're uh, all fantastic talents from the Bay Area. And then Musical Theater West also will have four performers singing before my show, and they're all from the L.A., Long Beach area. Let's talk a little about Jerry Herman. When did you meet him? What was your first encounter with Jerry Herman? First, as observing a show, and second, meeting him. Well, of course, I'd seen Hello, Dolly. Who hasn't seen Hello, Dolly? And you know, I don't think that I saw Carol Channing in the tour till the '80s. So I met Jerry before I actually saw Carol Channing do the tour. You know, I grew up in Tulsa, so you know we got bus and trucks and things like that. And I saw Mame the movie with Lucille Ball. I think that was probably the first Jerry Herman musical I actually saw. That movie Mame, which was an interesting movie. You know, I loved it. People always make fun of the fact that she's kind of fog. She's kind of foggy looking. <laughs> they used a few too many layers of filter. Yeah, there was some filter going on there. There was definitely some filter. but she looked great. And I thought she was perfectly cast. You know, the keys were very low for Lucille Ball's voice, but you know, they were really low for Carol Channing's voice too. So Jerry Herman can be sung by anybody, but 
I fell in love with that score. And I first met Jerry when I was in New York City. I'd been in New York only a couple of years and they were having auditions for the national tour of Hello, Dolly with Carol Channing. And so I went in for Barnaby and I mean, Richard, I knew I was going to be playing Barnaby someday. There was like two roles that I was determined to play. It was Barnaby in uh, Hello, Dolly and J.P. Pierpont in uh, How to Succeed in Business. <laughs> those were like, I was going to be playing those parts. Did you ever? I never played either one of them, Richard, but I'm not bitter. Well, you know, I got offered to stand by for Matthew Broderick in that revival of How to Succeed, the first really big revival on Broadway. And I really didn't want to. And I really wanted to play his nemesis. What was his character's name? Charles Nelson Riley played him. Bud Frump, not to be confused with Larry the Leprechaun. I didn't get that part, but they offered me the standby. And I actually turned it down because I thought, oh, God, I don't want to be that. You know, tonight, the the role usually played by Matthew Broderick will be played by Jason. And I thought, I, I'm just, I, I can't handle the audience leaving or booing when announce uh, my name. So uh, I turned it down. And now I realized maybe that was my last chance to play Finch. I still think I could play Finch if the theater was like 10,000 seats or over. I was seen through gauze and Vaseline lens, <laughs> like Mame. <laughs> when you met Jerry Herman, was there any anything specific about that first meeting or just, hi, Jerry? It was one of those meetings. I mean, I went in the door. Jerry was sitting behind the table. And gosh, I don't know who else was there. But I was so on the ceiling with hyperness. I was so nervous and excited to finally get in there and to audition for Barnaby. And I mean, I, I nailed it. I mean, I really like when I said, holy cabooses, Cornelius, you could hear a pin drop. It was just so beautiful. But when I left, Jerry stopped me and said, thank you for coming in. And I about fainted. <laughs> and that was the end. And I didn't see him, you know, I mean, he's a legend, he's huge. He's one of the reasons I got into this business. And I, I just was so elated to have been in there. I was very disappointed not to get it. And then it wasn't until 2000 uh, when, thanks to ASCAP and Michael Kirker, that I got cast in a review called Hello, Jerry. The review, I talk about this in my show, but it was uh, Paige O'Hara, who's the voice of Belle in Beauty and the Beast, and Karen Morrow, who's a Broadway legend, and myself and Jerry Herman and his longtime musical director, conductor, Don Pippen. And we traveled the country together. We went to, I don't know, 20 cities over the course of like, you know, 10 years. And we had an incredible time from like 2000 through the end. I've been very, very intertwined in Jerry's life. And I've gotten to do a lot of his shows and gotten to work closely with him. And Man, it's just been one of the greatest blessings of my life. He's truly one of the most generous human beings I've ever met. Jason Graw, to mention a couple of the shows that he did, the bigger shows were Hello, Dolly, Mame, La Cage Faux, Mac and Mabel, Milk and Honey. 1987 was La Cage Faux. After that, insofar as I know, the only score he did was for a not very good made-for-TV movie called Mrs. Santa Claus with Angela Lansbury. Had he continued composing? Did he just decide to stop? What's the story? Why were there never any later shows? That is the question. And 
I think there's many reasons. I think Lakasha Fall actually opened in 83. And so it was even earlier that he stopped writing. And unfortunately, he had... Now, a lot of people, and I've not seen Mrs. Santa Claus, but a lot of people are huge fans of that movie. So, and of course, it's got a Jerry Herman score and he really didn't know how to write a bad song if he tried. I mean, I, I've heard some of the songs and they're so good. He was working on another show called Miss Spectacular that was going to open in Las Vegas at uh, Wynn, Steve Wynn's place. And there were a lot of meetings and Tommy Toon was uh, set to direct it at one point and they did a concept album and they had a great great cast on the concept album that my friend Faith Prince sang on. And there's some really good songs on that. And they just, you know, through negotiating and timing and all this kind of stuff, the show never came to fruition, which was really, really too bad. Jerry was having a lot of challenges health-wise in his life. So I think that's, you know, he, he moved out to California and he had HIV. He was one of the earliest people that had HIV. And so he fought that for a good chunk of his life. And I really sincerely feel that that slowed down his writing because he had to tend to his health. What a loss, what a loss, you know, for all of us. But, you know, Kajafol kept getting revived. Every time it got revived, you know, it won the Tony. Uh, it was revived twice, I think. So each it's been on Broadway three times and it always won the Tony for best musical or best revival. And then, of course, this Bette Midler Hello, Dolly was a sensation. Did you get to see it? I saw it out here with Betty Buckley, mm. who was interesting, but miscast, I thought. I love her. I think she's amazing. I know she was interesting casting for it. It's not who you would think of right off the bat, but I kind of feel like she can do anything. So my feeling about it is that you need someone really larger than life. Mm -hmm. And Betty Buckley is one of those performers who works perfectly well within a play and she becomes a standout. But when she's got to step out and be more than the show, mm -hmm. She didn't strike me as that kind of performer. You need a Bette Midler or a Merman or someone like that. Right. You know, a, a diva in the most outrageous sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does lend itself to those kind of personalities that just, you know, I mean, Bette Midler, you were always aware that it was Bette Midler playing Hello, Dolly. And I felt the same way with Carol Channing, you know. I mean, she was so broad, <laughs> so over the top. The show allows that for that character. The show itself, the songs, as with a lot of Broadway shows, I, it's one of those shows where I felt the songs are stronger than the book. But it seemed to me that for a show like that, you needed somebody who would kind of take over the stage in a way the way you did in Scrooge and Love. Well, that's very nice of you. She's a good, solid performer, which brings her back and makes you focus more on the show itself. The show, yeah. And in this case, it brought out, to me, the show's flaws. Oh, well, that's interesting. Because I imagine it was a probably a very specific choice she made to be an actress and to serve the piece, which is what Betty Buckley does, you know, and to not go out and do her club act like Bette Midler did a bit. But I, I loved Bette Midler. I thought... You know, she was everything you were hoping she'd be. She was big and broad and bold. And I thought she served the piece all the while, you know, 
keeping you aware it was Bette Midler who was the star of it. Let, let me ask you something. If somebody had created a version of Hello, Dolly, that was, say, Hello, Donald, how would you feel playing Dolly or Donald? <laughs> Gee, if I had a nickel for every time someone's asked me this, Richard, I'd be out a nickel. Let me see. Let me see. <laughs> you know, I think with a show like that, of course, I'd love to get a chance to do Hello, Donald. Are you kidding me? With a show like that, I think you've got to start inside. You've got to start with what the play is about. You've got to go back to Thornton Wilder. You've got to go back to The Matchmaker. You've got to go figure out what this person wants. You do all the, all the work that you do, you know, if you're doing Pinter, and you figure out what your needs are and what your objectives are and, and all that. And then you slowly <laughs> bring out the rubber chicken and put on the red nose. No, you know, I mean, it's just like you, you get all that information and make sure that you're serving that because if you don't have that, then the plate can't work. And so you can't just have somebody out there just doing a club act. You've got to really have them invested in, in what the character wants and, and who, you know, their relationships with everybody. But then you can, you know, what I enjoy doing then is adding on top of that, you know, adding the icing. Do you perform any songs from Hello, Dolly in your show? I do. I actually do. Let's see. I sing It Only Takes a Moment. And I sing a song from the movie, which is uh, one of my opening songs, one of the opening numbers. I've got a couple. Uh, Just Leave Everything to Me. The lyrics were rewritten. You remember that song that Barbara Streisand sings when she's handing everybody cards? Just leave. They, in, the, in the show, it's called I Put My Hand In. And she's talking about being a, you know, the matchmaker and the busybody. And she's helping everybody and giving cards out and, and always selling, selling her, her, her wares. And uh, they wrote a new song for Barbara Streisand that fits her voice so great. And it's a great song in the movie. It's a really great opener. Uh, now, Mac and Mabel, did you ever see that? I did not see it. Did you? No, I did not. I've not seen any version of it. 42nd Street Mood might have done it at some point, but I didn't catch it. It's just confounds so many people because everything about it just cries. It's a hit. It's a hit. You know, the score is just amazing. And the subject matters, you know, so fascinating about Max Sennett who ran Keystone Studios and all the silent, he was the king of the silent films and, and his girlfriend, Mabel Norman, who was a huge silent film star and their very tempestuous relationship and kind of abusive relationship for her. And I think that's part of the problem is he's so unlikable and he's the leading man. And it's, I think that's part of the reason that the show's had some issues, but we did in, in, um, in New York at Lincoln Center at Avery Fisher Hall, we did a concert of Mac and Mabel and it was like, oh, all these incredible people. Uh, Donna McKechnie and the Rockettes came out and sang Tap Your Troubles Away and they, you know, Doug Sills and Karen Ziemba and uh, oh, so many Broadway types. Harvey Firestein sang and uh, I got to sing I Want to Make the World Laugh. And it was such, it was packed and it was the perfect way to do that show because the score is so beloved and flawless. I mean, it's just a flawless Jerry Herman score. And the book has just given everybody who's worked on it agita because they just can't figure out the right tone and how to make this thing work. And so 
you know, maybe someday they'll do it. It's like chess, the musical chess also drives people crazy because it's got a great score and the book and the plot is cumbersome and it doesn't work. When you hear chess in concert, you just think, well, the score is amazing. It's thrilling to hear, you know, why can't they fix the book? <laughs> so uh, that's the Mac and Mabel story. I mean, people in the business there, everybody wants to have a revival of Mac and Mabel ASAP. So, you know, we'll see. There are a few other shows that fit that. For a long time, Candide was, but I think they've finally gotten together a libretto for Candide that works. Yeah, they really did. Yeah, you're right. You're right. How Prince came in and, you know, made it just a big circus and cut a lot of the operetta-y, you know, songs out of it and just made it a three-ring circus. And it was really moving and very satirical and funny. I've done it twice. I've loved it. And yet at the same time, there's also an opera version that contains all the operetta stuff where you don't have to worry about the libretto. Right. It's the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Pangloss. <laughs> I love Candide. I just love it. I did it in college at Cincinnati Conservatory. I played Pangloss in there, and then I did it at the Guthrie Theater, and I played Candide. And it was just one of the greatest experiences of my life. There's another score from Bernstein, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah. Uh, have you ever heard it? I have. Yeah. Yeah, because I have a recording of Opening Night, and it's an absolutely beautiful score, and there's never been a decent recording of it. Yeah, I think it was the Berkeley Symphony did a recording of it that's dead in the water. Oh, really? It's a gorgeous score that has never been recorded, and it's a show that clearly was beyond problematic. Yes, it was. It was. It was about all the tenants in the White House, and they just covered a lot of ground with, you know, different presidents and, and their wives and through the years. But it had this great Bernstein score. I can't remember who did the lyrics. We actually, my high school concert chorus went up to D.C. and we performed on the White House lawn. I think I did a George M. Cohen medley. <laughs> that was like my big solo. And I think right when I started performing, like all the tour groups were kind of sitting there watching us. And right when I got up to sing my solo, like all the tour groups got up to leave. <laughs> so I was like performing for like eight people, I think. But uh, everyone was laughing behind me. But uh, we got to see 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, which was in previews at that point uh, at the National Theater in D.C. And I loved it. But I remember thinking, this isn't totally working, but boy, that score. I'll never forget the song, Take Care of This House. Take Care of This House. Ugh. On Broadway, they made a change and added an opening song called Rehearse, oh. which later became uh, an instrumental orchestral piece called Slava hmm. by Bernstein. And that song is, just blew my mind when I heard it. Yeah. And then when Berkeley Symphony did it, they completely cut that song and went back to the score that you heard. Uh huh. And I kept thinking, you know, you put it all together, you've got this giant mess, but somebody should be able to untangle it and at least create a fantastic, you know, a concert version of it where it would work. Yeah. But it hasn't been done. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know why people are so wary of it. I, maybe it's the Bernstein estate. 
you know, doesn't want it out uh, because you would think that places like 42nd Street Moon and Encores in New York and Reprise out in L.A. when it was here, they would be dying to do, you know, to re-explore that piece. Did it even come into Broadway? I don't even know if it opened them. Yes, it lasted a week. Oh, it did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that was, I think, the end of Bernstein's Broadway life. Yeah, interesting. Because after that, he did an opera that was 12-tone. A real toe-tapper. I want to ask you about some people in Broadway that you may or may not have run across and what it was like just thinking about them or knowing them. Did you ever meet Merman? No, I did not. I did not. (laughs) I would have loved to. Did people tell you stories about her? Yeah. Yeah. My favorite story about her is when somebody (laughs) saw her playing with her grandkids in Central Park and she was like at the swing set with them and she was like kind of, you know, half-assed pushing them on those swings and the kids got off and they were complaining about it. And you heard Ethel Merman go, well, what the fuck do you do? You want to do? (laughs) That's always my favorite one. How about Barbara Cook? Barbara Cook. I worked with yes, Barbara Cook. I did Rogers and Hammerstein concerts with, I was lucky enough to do it at 92nd street Y and with the New Jersey symphony and, and a couple other symphonies. I did some really incredible R&H concerts with Barbara Cook and Marilyn Horn and Mary Rogers, Richard Rogers's daughter was the MC. There were like four of us Broadway people and then Marilyn and Barbara were the two guests and then Mary Rogers hosted it. And oh my God, you know, it just, they were both such grand dames, Marilyn Horn of the opera world and Barbara of the Broadway world. And they came out and they just, I think they sang, uh, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair together. And they did some really fun body stuff and they were just great dames. You know, they were really amazing. Shortly before Barbara passed, I did a tribute to her at the Players Club and it was a really fun, special evening. And I got to sing, it was a tribute to Lee Adams and Barbara Cook. And so I sang a couple songs from Applause and Barbara was there and I, she was in a wheelchair. I got a picture with her and, you know, it was it was so moving. I just loved her. I, I saw her everywhere I could. I saw her at the Cafe Carlisle. I saw her at the Amundsen in LA. She was just one of a kind. Marilyn Horn was a fun, good time gal on those symphony gigs. And Barbara Cook was a little more cautious, you know, about what she was doing, making sure everything was working for her. She still was very generous and uh, and loved to laugh and her voice just remained in stunning shape till the end. That was astonishing. She was well in her 80s, yep. and she could still sing soprano a cappella. Yep. Uh, did you ever meet Streisand? I have two Streisand stories, but are we best friends? No. However, when I was doing Houdini in the U.S. premiere of Ragtime out here in L.A. at the Schubert Theater, Everybody came to see it. It started here, and then six months later, it opened on Broadway with a different company. But the L.A. production was the one that kind of like came in and and created a stir. And I saw it in L.A. Yeah, 
Oh, so you saw me hanging upside down in a straitjacket for my I for my guess feet, I must have, yes. <laughs> which I have never done sober, Richard, except in that show. Just an interesting side note. But we were so excited when we heard that Barbara Streisand, I got to the theater and they, the, everybody was abuzz and they said, Barbara Streisand's in the audience tonight. And, you know, she's it. She is a number one it. And she came backstage to use the John before the show. And I had to... I had I had a harness on and I had my straight jacket on and my handcuffs and I had to walk over stage right and then go up the catwalk to 60 feet above the stage. And then they hooked me up from my ankles. There was a hook from my harness. I made my entrance hanging upside down coming into the opening number. It was the greatest entrance. It was really amazing. So I'm standing there and there's James Brolin and this big guy that obviously was a bodyguard standing by the stage right john and then everybody said it's barbara is in the bathroom before the show because she didn't want to use the bathroom in the lobby for obvious reasons because <laughs> of people like me who'd be staring at her all the time so i was standing next to this little group waiting nonchalantly in my straight jacket and my handcuffs just acting like I belonged with these people, <laughs> waiting for her to come out of the bathroom. And the stage manager said, Jason, it's you've got to get up to your place. We can't go into overtime. And I said, very quietly, Barbara Streisand is in the john, and I've waited my entire life to see her. So if you'll just excuse me, I'll pay overtime to the entire company if we go into overtime. So she came out and she looked at me. And then we all moved on. So that was great. Then after the show was over, she exited through the backstage and she stopped in my dressing room. She just stopped at my dressing room door and looked in and I was getting out of my costume and uh, she just waved and I waved back. <laughs> that was it. That was it. And then cut to like five years ago, I did a demo tape her a longtime recording producer called me to do the demo tape for her duets album that she does like she has a complete demo tape where she they lay down all the songs with her. She's got a, a vocal girl that does all the demo work for us so that Barbara can listen to it and figure stuff out. And it was a Sondheim duet that she was going to do with Alec Baldwin. And they decided that I was the perfect person to double as Alec Baldwin for the demo tape which is not really a great compliment. So anyway, I got to do the demo tape and then I was supposed to go over to her house. They were so happy with me on the demo tape and they wanted me to lay down the scene with her in her recording studio. And I was beside myself. I'm talking so much, forgive me, but um, I haven't told this story in so long. You can cut it if you want to. But uh, anyway, when I went in to record everything, they said, we're running behind schedule and we're going to have to cancel the thing with you and Barbara reading the scene. And um, I was so disappointed, but I understood. So I wrote her a letter because I was so disappointed and so jacked up that I got to be part of, you know, the early part of the project. And she wrote me back and it was a great letter. And she loved, she said, I love your voice and your letter made me laugh and we needed laughter today. And she was so gracious and so sweet. And I was on the ceiling for a month afterwards. In the past uh, year and year and a half, we lost two great Broadway performers, and I'm, I'm sure you knew both of them, Marin Mazzi and Rebecca Luker. Yeah, yeah. And you, you worked closely with Rebecca on uh, some of those recordings, CDs, yes, right? Yes, 
I did. I did. I could burst into tears right now thinking about it. She died of ALS, for God's sake. And it happened fast. Yeah, in the 80s and 90s, we were always paired up together. And it's funny because she was just a little taller than me. I called her the Princess Grace of Broadway. I mean, she just was so beautiful and graceful and delightful. Yeah, we do this. I don't know if you've seen our uh, thing from the Boston Pops that was on PBS, but we did Tea for Two together. And I'm so happy to have that video on there. And it's had like over a half a million hits. I mean, it's just like, it's a great song. First of all, we were so young and she was so beautiful. And then, and we did a lot of, we played opposite each other and a lot of the recordings and Babes in Arms and Annie Get Your Gun. And, you know, and then she just became like the star soprano of Broadway. She sounded, had a little Barbara Cook quality in her voice. I saw her a couple of times on Broadway. Um, I think she was in Secret Garden. Yes. Yeah. She played Lily. And I saw her there and she was in a show, a Maury Yeston show with incredible songs and no libretto called Death Takes a Holiday. Mm-hmm. It's the last show I ever saw with my mom before she passed. The first time I heard her voice was on a recording of Strike Up the Band. I'm on that recording. Well, there you go. And I remember she sang The Man I Love. I kept playing it over and over. Oh, it's just so beautiful. It's just beautiful. She just was perfect for that era. But yet her voice transcended. You know, she just wasn't just about, you know, singing in the 30s and 40s, 20s, 30s and 40s. But, you know, then things like Secret Garden and and the show you just mentioned, Death Takes a Holiday, those were modern pieces. And she had a her voice transcended any era. I thought, you know, in The Music Man, she was just stunning, just so stunning. And then Marin Maisie, uh, I worked with also, and she was beloved by everybody in the community, and, and it was very tragic. Did you ever work with Audra McDonald? Audra, we were in a theater company for a very short time in New York, a theater company we all created called Favored Nations, and I think we did a, a benefit together somewhere. But uh, no, we haven't worked in a show together. I'm such a huge fan of hers. Good God. Did you ever meet Channing? Carol Channing? I did. I did several times and I did a couple benefits with her. We did a Jerry Herman Actors Fund benefit that was fantastic out here in Los Angeles. And the final rehearsal, she fell off the stage and uh, fractured her arm. So she came out on opening night with a, uh, a cast. She and Angela Lansbury and Bernadette Peters were all in this Jerry Herman tribute. And Angela Lansbury came out and was singing Hello, Dolly with a chorus of men behind her. And then you hear this voice trumpeting from backstage. Somebody's singing my song. (laughs) And then she came out and Angela looked guilty, like, "Uh uh-oh, caught. And then Carol then launched into MAME and all the boys joined Carol Channing doing MAME. And then they all came together and, and did a big mashup of Hello, Dolly and MAME. It was incredible seeing these two grand dames <laughs> together on stage. It was really amazing. But she she gave me one of the biggest compliments of my life. She came to see Forbidden Hollywood and Forbidden Broadway, which I'd done out in L.A. And her main compliment to me, which at the time didn't mean anything, but as I get older, I get it. And I think what a huge compliment. She came backstage and she looked at me and said, Jason, I could understand every word you said. It was a compliment from somebody that I can barely understand anything she said. When you're working with these people, with people who are, you know, larger than life, 
where you're kind of in awe. How do you keep it together when you've got a script and you're so busy watching them? I mean, it's not a problem for me. When I interviewed Channing, I could just sit there and gawk while she <laughs> transformed the studio into, you know, this tiny studio. She had so much energy. I was high for a weekend. <laughs> but how do you do it when you're on stage with them? Well, the thing is, is those benefits and concerts, you know, you're doing your own thing and they're doing their own thing. And then sometimes you come together at the end. So, you know, it doesn't affect my work personally. I do remember that night after the Jerry Herman show, I was walking down the uh, hallway after the bout with Leroy Reams, you know, Leroy, who's done, you know, all, he he's done all the Jerry Herman shows and he's done Hello, Dolly and directed it. And he played Cornelius forever. And he worked very closely with Carol Channing. They loved each other. And um, he's a great guy with so many stories. And we were walking along and Carol looked at me and she said, Jason, you were absolutely hilarious tonight. I said, oh, my God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Leroy said, yeah. And if you were doing eight shows a week with her, she'd have 25 notes for you. <laughs> so you know she kept an eye on everybody I, my favorite story of hers was and i think it was my friend was playing barnaby an understudy was going on for barnaby that night who just killed it was in the national tour and he went on and he just killed as barnaby and carol channing told the stage manager to please send that barnaby understudy to her dressing room and he was so excited. He thought, oh, Carol Channing's going to, you know, compliment me and tell me how great I did. And so he was so excited. He knocked on her door and she opened the door and she invited him in and she pointed to the poster that she had in her dressing room. And she said, I just want you to see this. This is called Hello, Dolly, not Hello, Barnaby. <laughs> Which I think is a great compliment and hurtful. <laughs> Over the past few years, we've been hearing about the Me Too movement, mostly involving Hollywood. Did you observe any of that? Or, you know, as a gay man, were you sort of on the side of that, not really seeing any of it? I'm, you know, really sad to say no one ever, you know, approached me inappropriately. I heard that from a couple of actresses who kind of said the same thing, and they were both delighted and appalled at the same time. <laughs> well, you know, I was like, hashtag, why not me too? What's the matter with me? No, it's, I, I'm, I'm happy that this movement is happening, and uh, I'm mortified to see how many people have had problems. I will say, we all got in theater, and it was one of those places where nothing was taboo, you know, and the directors I'd worked with and my college director at Cincinnati Conservatory, he was, everybody was inappropriate. That's what theater was. We, we all changed in dressing rooms. The, some of the off, off Broadway shows I did, we were all crammed in one dressing room. So we didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, our guards up about anything like that. It wasn't a priggish group. We were all kind of used to being down and dirty, if that's the right word for it. But the sexual stuff and people using their positions of power in order to, uh, you know, have intimacy with people. I mean, I think it's abominable. And so, yes, probably I did have that at the very beginning. I think I did encounter it a couple times. And, you know, 
it was part of it and it didn't last long though. I really did not encounter that through my career at all. And the casting couch, which I'd heard about for so many years, uh, that never presented itself to me. My mom was cast in the national tour of Lady in the Dark with Mary Martin, I think, did the tour, I think. And George Kaufman propositioned my mom and probably, you know, helped her get cast in the chorus. And my mother was like, wow, you know, what was I thinking? She said, of course, I'm not going to go out with you. But, you know, then later in hindsight, she went, what was I thinking? I totally should have gone out with it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's been happening since day one. So it's a fascinating time we're in right now. We're also hearing about people like Scott Rudin and Joss Whedon, who weren't sexual predators, but at the same time, their behavior when they were angry was out of control. Mm -hmm. And again, I would think that that would happen on Broadway quite a bit, like say with someone like Jerome Robbins. I think the tone has changed so much through the years, and I think it needed to. I think it's a far less volatile business than it used to be. When I got into the business and got into New York in the 80s, that was, you know, around the time of Michael Bennett and Bob Fosse, and they were volatile. And Jerome Robbins was the most volatile. But, you know, that was just accepted behavior. They would intimidate their dancers and yell at them and scream and, you know, but they were also geniuses. So they got away with everything. You know, I worked with Twyla Tharp in ABT. I sang a ballet and uh, Judy Blazer and I, it was all Jerome Kern music. And we went to the San Francisco and, and LA and then we opened at the Met and the Kennedy Center. And, and she was so kind to us and treated us, the singers, with such great respect. And it was so delightful. But boy, when she turned to the dancers, she was tough and they took it, you know, and it's just was, that was kind of the accepted standard behavior back then. And now everyone's just nicer. You know, you just have the, the modern Broadway, people are kinder, gentler, and no one stands for that kind of crap anymore, you know. And it isn't as if creativity has fallen by the wayside. No. Maybe it wasn't necessary. I don't know. I mean, it's part of the evolution. And for a while, nice was in. Now, who knows where it's going to head now? You know, everyone's being very cautious now, and it's in such a transition. Who knows what it's going to be since everybody's been off for, you know, over a year. Everyone's going to be so grateful and happy to be back together again. I have dreams once a week where I'm in a show. I can't find my costume. I'm late. I can't find the stage, but I'm with people and I'm with my tribe and I I wake up, you know, misty-eyed because I, I miss it so badly. I just can't wait to get back. Have you set up plans for what will happen when theaters reopen or is it too soon? Well, it's slowly things are happening and, uh, you know, this perfect harmony was a nice job to do that. It was, I felt like, Oh, I'm back in the business again. And, and hosting the 42nd street moon gala, you know, I drove up to San Francisco and we were at the, on the gateway stage. And I was there with Darren and Daniel, who I just have grown to love. And, you know, we were all together and I saw some actors and, and, and Diane McBride, our director of Scrooge. And it was just like, we're back, you know, we're slowly getting back. I have some jobs slowly coming up and, you know, I think people are cautiously dipping their toes in the water, concert, cabaret stuff, one-man shows. Those things are starting to happen, and I've got a couple offers for things coming up. So, you know, I'm grateful. I'm thrilled for it, and I'm also like, I got to get off the couch. 
I gotta like, I gotta go shave now. <laughs> what I noticed is that I always had guilt that I should be quote doing more. Mm-hmm. And in the past year, I haven't felt that. Yes. It's been kind of nice because, you know, everybody's in the same boat. Well, what have you done in the past year beside the Jerry Herman and the 42nd Street Moon? Have you been working? Yeah, I've, I've done a lot of, uh, you know, Zoomy and videoy things. A lot of galas for theater companies. I was teaching Zoom master classes, cabaret workshops and things like that, which was very fun to do. It's weird, you know, when people are sitting in their Zoom square performing and talking about song interpretation, but it just felt so good to be with people and talk about those things. You know, I did Forever Plaid and we had the 30th anniversary. We did a 30th anniversary reunion concert in August. Uh, First, we did a reunion podcast of the original cast and it was so much fun. And then the Rubicon Theater in Ventura got us to perform at the Ventura County Fairgrounds. And we did a week of concerts there and everybody was in their cars watching us and we were all socially distanced. We couldn't do the whole show because of the union and all that. So we just, we did it as a concert and we played ourselves talking about the show and it was really fun. And it looks like we're going to be doing it at musical theater West two weeks of it outdoors. The audience will be sitting on bleachers and we're doing it in a parking lot and we'll be on a stage and I'm really looking forward to that. Jason Grah, what is Gotta Move, where you're supposedly the director? It's a movie from 2017, and that's on IMDb. Does that exist? Gotta Move? Oh, Gotta Move. Yeah, I directed it. I've directed several cabaret shows, and that was uh, one of the shows that I directed, uh, starring Seth Hampton. And that was his kind of autobiographical cabaret show. Did you ever record The Prince and the Showboy with Faith Prince or your own one-man show? I did record Perfect Harmony, so that album is available. I think by going to my website, you can get find Perfect Harmony and, and then I'll send you one. And Faith and I have not recorded The Prince and the Showboy, and we would love to. We're hoping we have... Uh, a couple gigs coming up. We have the best time together and I'm so proud of that show. And I love being in her company. I do have the recording of her in Bells Are Ringing and she's mm-hmm. fabulous. Yeah, she is. She's amazing. She, she's kind of a guru. You know, she was our minister at uh, my wedding uh, with my husband and she was a great minister. I mean, she should be a great minister with a name like Faith, right? Yeah, she's one of my dearest friends. What is The Awakening of Spring? The Awakening of Spring was a TV movie that I did. It is the play that Spring Awakening is based on. Oh. I was doing with Constance Towers, another fabulous broad. Uh, She and I were doing six dance lessons in six weeks here in L.A. And the director, Arthur Seidelman, had directed Awakening of Spring, and he directed our six dance lessons. And he was filming that while we were doing six dance lessons and offered uh, us both the uh, movie. And so we were doing that during the day and then doing this huge two-person play at night. We were exhausted. Oh, my God. We were so punchy. One night we were in a really dramatic scene in Act One, and Constance had been filming all day. And then we came over to the, and she's very slender and elegant and gracious and beautiful. And, and uh, she hadn't had time to eat. I never saw her eat. And 
she, we were sitting having this very dramatic scene and her stomach let out the hugest growl. It was so loud and Mike picked it up and you heard the audience titter. And I looked down and she could not, she was a person that when she started to laugh, she was gone. There was no bringing her back. And we sat there probably in silence for two minutes while we were laughing on stage. <laughs> It was really bad. <laughs> we were so punchy and exhaustive. One of the great things about live theater is those kinds of things happen. And at that moment, performers and audiences are almost as one because they're living together in that experience. And I guess that's one of the things that makes live theater so great. That's what we've been missing. And, you know, I've, do, I've done so many uh, Zoom shows and videos. I've got three videos I'm working. I'm hosting a virtual event coming up and just doing it alone in my living room with a, you know, camera. The silence is deafening and it's so sad. You're just looking into this device, you know, and it is about the audience. It's a live experience. And, you know, we all experience it together. And I just can't wait to be back in a theater and experience that both in the audience and on stage. You've been listening to an interview with Jason Grah. Perfect Harmony can be streamed at specific times every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday through May 2nd on the 42nd Street Moon website and on-demand streaming on the Musical Theater West website April 15th through 25th. I'm Rich Walensky and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm-hmm.